Hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Temple-Major. Now in this episode we're continuing the anthology White Sails Shaking, edited by Ira Henry Freeman. We're on the third part of the reading and we're on the second story. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. 3,000 Miles to Nowhere by J. Weston Martyr Breathes there the yachtsman with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, Someday I shall build my own, my perfect ship. Few of these boats ever get translated into actuality, and a good thing too, for most of them would turn out to be far short of perfection. Wes Martyr, an English writer who had suffered many years as an independent servant to businessmen in the colonies and America, really got his perfect ship created about 20 years ago. He and his pal bravely chucked their jobs and went to the well-known Nova Scotian shipbuilding village of Shelburne to supervise the work. Then, penniless, the two young men sailed away for a six-week idyllic cruise to nowhere, 3,000 miles in aimless circles on the North Atlantic, until, finally, they had to come out of their dream world, come back to Earth, and sell the boat. Their little schooner, South Seaman, was all right. She would have won the Bermuda race if properly navigated, but she came to a sad end, falling into the hands of bootleggers and then the Coast Guard. The boat was burned at last by Marta, who could not bear to let her rot away under federal arrest. My all-night sail brought the South Seaman, according to my reckoning, within about 60 miles of Bermuda, and when George the Navigator turned out of his bunk in the morning and discovered this fact, he was privately but visibly much perturbed and agitated. I sympathised with George, for I knew full well the awful load of suspense which weighs upon the mind of the nascent navigator when about to make a landfall after his first long passage at sea. At the same time, I knew it was as much as my life was worth to let George notice any signs of sympathy about me, for I have remarked that all navigators, be they budding amateurs or overripe professionals, invariably hug the belief that their sacred works and mysteries are absolutely infallible. This is the reason, therefore, that I did not ask George if he were looking for Bermuda, when he dragged his enormous bulk to the foremast head and gazed long and earnestly at the horizon. If my dead reckoning was approximately correct, there seemed to be a good chance of our being able to pick up the land before nightfall, so we set everything that would hang up anywhere and draw and bustled the schooner along for all she was worth. I say we did these things, but as a matter of fact, it was I alone who sailed the ship all through that long day. I had to steer and cook and do everything else that had to be done, except navigate. George navigated. He navigated and he did nothing else. He did not even eat. He took his first observation of the sun at 7.30am and he continued to spy upon that body with fervent ardour until it sank, blushing, to hide its nakedness at last behind the merciful horizon. At times when the bearings of George's sextant became, I think, red-hot from overwork, he would plunge into a very fury of calculation, involving all the works of reference in the ship 
nearly all the note paper, much groaning, a deal of perplexed head scratching and an active protrusion of the tip of his tongue. These performances generally culminated in George being plunged into the profoundest depths of gloom, but sometimes he would manage to achieve a not too improbable result. One AM site put us 160 miles to the southeastward of our destination, but when George checked over his figures, he found he had made a mistake and this being rectified, he proved beyond a doubt that the South Seaman was not at sea at all, but about seven miles upcountry from Port-au-Prince in the island of Haiti. During the course of that morning, as George worked out position after position, we wandered all over the Atlantic Ocean, and once we even managed to skip across into the Pacific as well. George got a splendid fix at noon. He was very pleased with it, and he said so. But when he worked it out... He was not so delighted, for it showed that we had just sailed slap through the middle of Bermuda without noticing it. I think myself this particular site was one of George's best efforts, for I am pretty well convinced that at that moment we were really within about 30 miles of Bermuda, and in spite of his best endeavours, George never again succeeded in placing us within a 100 miles of these still-vexed isles, as Shakespeare, for some extraordinary reason, calls them. And now, having made fun of George's navigation, let me admit that my own efforts in this direction not only lacked the grandeur and boldness of conception of George's best work, but they were, in addition, equally unsuccessful. I do not think I shot so wide of the mark as George, but the fact remains that I did not hit it. The noxious truth is, we did not make Bermuda at all. We never saw a sign of the confounded place. George's excuses are, A. The chronometer altered its rate. B. And somebody sat on his sextant and bent it. And C. Our charts are out of date. And D. The island had sunk or shifted. For myself, I plead the following extenuating circumstance. Bermuda always was the devil of a place to find. George and I did not give up Bermuda without a struggle. We looked for the place for three whole days. I was quite willing after one day's search to sail on and leave Bermuda with a sailor's blessing. But George's soul, for some... Perverse reason thirsted after hot baths that his body did not really need at all. Such was the force of George's perverted longing that on the second day of our search he bent on a bosun's chair to the topmost staysail halyards, hoisted himself to the main truck, and from this lofty perch spied with his binoculars for that haven where he would be until he got cramp in the legs and I had to lower him down again. On the first day we sailed south, then east, then north, then west, and saw nothing. On the second day we covered some new ground in the zigzags this time, and George thought he saw breakers on the reef, but they turned out to be baby whales of sorts spouting. On the third day we sped hotfoot to the norwest again, on the strength of a spurious clue which George erroneously declared he had unearthed by following the alleged methods of one Sumner. On the fourth day, I filled every available pot, bucket, pail and saucepan in the ship, put them on the stove and the primus and made a beautiful canvas bath in the cockpit, filled it with boiling water and delivered myself of the following burst of eloquence. George, this is a bath. It's a good bath. It's a hot bath. It is a very hot bath. For the love of Mike, bathe your confounded carcass in the cockpit before it gets cold and forget about baths and Bermuda forever, and let's get on with our cruise. It was with light hearts then, 
and with our spirits free from any trace of anxiety or care, that we turned our backs on Bermuda and sailed away for another 600 miles right out into the blue. We went on and on until we entered at last into a very lonely part of the sea, far from all tracks of steamers, into a region where the weather is always fine and the winds are so variable and light that all sailing vessels on business bent make it their particular business to shun the place as they would a plague spot. So George and I, being by no means on business bent, were only too glad to drift into this lost and lonely corner of the world, for we were searching for something it is difficult to find in more frequented places. We were looking for quietness and peace, and it is a significant fact that we found these things waiting for us in a place on which mankind firmly and persistently turns its back. But our holiday had lasted much longer than we had originally intended it should, and our stores consequently were running low, and until we could sell our schooner we had no means at all of buying any more. Our total assets consisted of the South Seaman and $16.75 in cash. It was therefore high time to go. We started our regular watches and kept them night and day from that time onwards. There were 1,300 miles to sail and after that we had to sell the schooner and we had only about three weeks grub plus our $16.75 to do it on. There were two things to be done and we did them both. We cut down our rations and we sailed the ship for all we were worth. We were lucky with our weather and managed to work out to the region of calms and light airs in four days when we picked up a brave southwesterly wind and kept it for five days more until we reached 35 degrees north, 70 degrees west, by my guess, and 33 degrees north, 67 degrees west, by George's calculations. The next night we walked into seven squalls, one after the other, which proved we had entered the Gulf Stream, and a thermometer in a bucket of seawater confirmed our position. We took two days to cross the stream, got a famous push to the northwest on the other side of it, and we were beginning to think of looking out for the land, which we hoped would be Sandy Hook, but expected to be anywhere between Hatteras and Nantucket, when it commenced to blow hard out of the southwest and the weather got thick and dirty. From that time on, it was anxious work. We hove to at night, for we dared not risk running ashore in the darkness, but the next day we kept the schooner tearing along through the smother, while with aching eyes we strove to get a sight of anything that would give us a hint of our position. And we saw nothing. No land, no ships, no change in the colour of the water, nothing at all. Even the sun hid itself steadfastly from George behind the low and overcast sky of that typical southwesterly weather. We had then been 42 days at sea, and in all that time we had not seen a single ship nor any land at all. I was tired and worn out with many anxieties, and my nerve must have been badly shaken too, for, at the last, I began to be stricken with grievous fancies and suddenly arrived at the conclusion that we were completely lost. By my reckoning, we should have made the land early the day before, but there was no land, there was still no land, and when there continued to be no land, when I was certain land should be, I lost confidence in myself and fell a prey to panic. The fact that if we continued to sail to the westward, we must sight land at last, carried no weight with me. I was past facts then and was filled only with vain imaginings. If you have ever been lost yourself, you will sympathise with me and understand how it was that I could seriously consider the possibility 
of the land having sunk or of our compass pointing in the wrong direction. I actually did these things, and I can now laugh at myself for doing them. But if you laugh at me, I hope you may get lost yourself some day, so that you may realise how easily a man may make a fool of himself under some conditions. At noon we hove to, and bent on to the lead all the small line we had in the ship, and took a cast with it. And when we got no bottom, I knew there was no land left, and that all the world had been turned to water, for that cast was over a 170 fathoms deep. Nothing to do, I suppose, said George, but to go on to the westward and keep our eyes skinned. We must get a sight of something soon, though, by gum. I'm beginning to think... And just then George stopped and stiffened and gazed ahead intently. And something right ahead, he cried. Thank God, it looks like a light ship. No, it's a big schooner with her sails stowed. I sprang up and gazed wildly ahead. And I seemed to remember I danced and yelled with relief when I picked up that schooner too. I was never so glad to see anything in my life before. The murk which had hidden the schooner must have suddenly thinned for she was within five miles of us, and we could see she was riding head to wind under bare poles, and she looked as if she were anchored. We bore down rapidly on this mysterious craft, moored apparently in mid-ocean, until presently we made out another vessel about a mile to the northward of her, and soon, just beyond her, another schooner appeared, and then another, and another, and another. Queer, said I. There's a fleet of them now. We're not seeing things, George, are we? I don't know, George answered. I've just counted twenty-seven of them, and more keep showing up all the time. Must be a bank there, and they're anchored on it, fishing. I can't pick up any land. Nor I, I said. I wonder where on earth we've got to. I never saw anything like this before. It's rum. Rum, cried George at that. Why, by gosh, Jay, that's what it is. It is rum. We've butted full tilt into rum Roman. That's where we are. And sure enough, that is just where we were. I had often read about Rum Row. In those days, the American papers used to be full of news about the place, so that one was led to believe they kept a squad of special correspondents there. But, all the same, I had always been a little sceptical about it. But there it was, sure enough, Rum Row, mile after mile of it, a sight that was hardly credible. Ahead of us, on either bow, lay a long line of schooners at anchor. There were thirty or forty of them in plain sight, and beyond, over the horizon, as far as we could see, waved the mastheads of still more schooners. Farther to the southward were two steamers, one of them an English yacht, very well known on the Southampton water, and the other was a small tanker, flying the French flag. As we approached this fleet, we saw that the sea was alive with motorboats running about between the schooners, while a tremendous buzzing in the sky announced the arrival of a seaplane at the market. The place was astounding, a regular raving fair in full blast upon the high seas. It was a sight to see. In its palmy days was Rum Row, and I am glad I saw it. But to come suddenly upon this extraordinary spectacle as we did, fresh from the great loneliness of the sea, was a mighty queer experience. So for a little while we were filled with amazement, and we wondered if we had gone mad or if we were merely dreaming. But when we rounded the South Seaman into the wind close alongside the nearest schooner, we were soon brought down to earth. Schooner ahoy! yelled George. Where are we? What's our position? A large man climbed to the top of the schooner's house, and, leaning on her boom, he surveyed us with a jaundiced-looking eye and spat copiously into the sea. Then, 
Sixty-five dollars a case, said he. Send your dory. No, 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 cried George. We don't want any liquor. We want our position. We've been out six weeks and our chronometer's lost its rate and we don't know where we are. We're lost. The hell, you say, said the large man in tones of astonishment and anger. Then what in hell are you doing here? Where the hell do you think you are, you blamed galoots? You're fifteen mile to the east-southeast of Montuk, and to hell with you, you poor boobs. Where's your nurse? The large man had a great deal more to say to us. He was bung full of speech, but in a little while we had heard all we wanted to hear. So, much obliged, I'm sure, said George, taking off his hat politely. Good afternoon. And with that we put our helm up and stood away on a west-northwesterly course, right through the midst of that astounding fleet, until we had dropped the schooners astern, and the land began to show up dimly ahead of us. By dark, Montauk Point, at the eastern end of Long Island, was abeam, and by dawn the schooner was swinging to both anchors at the inner end of New London Harbour, with the Boston trains screeching and thundering over the bridge above our mastheads, and smoke and soot and coal dust and cinders blowing all over her from the railway yard close by. A dirty launch bumped into her, leaving its dirty marks all along one white and salty side, a dirty man jumped aboard and scuffed his dirty boots on our bleached decks. A gentleman in uniform invaded our little cabin, worried us with many questions, chewed the butt of an evil-smelling cigar, and spat with vigour and persistence upon our cabin floor. Our holiday, it seemed, was now over, and we had returned to civilization once more. We tried to sell our boat at New London and failed. We tried again in New Haven and failed again, then, subsisting solely on a diet of canned pork and beans, we took the schooner to New York and existed there for two weeks on the proceeds of sale of a coil of spare rope and our four suits of shore clothes. Then I sold a short story for $80, payment on publication at some unknown future date, but the gods were with me there and allowed me to compound for $25 down spot cash when I would willingly have accepted 10 Poor old George and I had carried our goods to the wrong market, and we had a wretched time of it accordingly. Suffice it to say that when things were at their worst, and we were down to our last dollar again, then at last the gods relented and sent us Mr Mullins. At first sight, Mr Mullins hardly created the impression that he had come straight from heaven, for Mr Mullins was fat, had a hard, hard face, was loudly and obviously prosperous, and he occupied himself sedulously with the cultivation of a manner most tough and unrefined. This lavishly disguised angel was first observed by me cruising at high speed round and round the South Seaman in a motor launch. He cocked an exceedingly knowing and crafty-looking eye at the schooner's hull and rigging, boarded her with a rush, jerked out a brusque, How do you do, boys? and proceeded to examine our boat on deck and below with thoroughness and extreme dispatch. George and I, scurrying in his train, strove hard to reply to the volley of questions which he shot at us in rapid bursts as of machine-gun fire. So fast did these questions rattle about our ears that we found it quite impossible to answer any of them, but this did not appear to matter, for Mr Mullins knew the answers to them all. Within ten minutes every hole and corner of our boat had been ransacked and peered into, and then Mr Mullins drove us into the cabin, shut both doors, and held forth as follows. See here, boys, I'm Mullins, and I guess you've heard of me. I raced the Ariole to Bermuda last year, and she finished last. The boys guide me considerably, I'll say. So, this year, I'm out to stage a comeback. 
I gotta be first down to the onion patch this time, believe me, Bo. Now, this little ocean racer of yours looks good to me, so I'll buy her. That's where I stand. All cards on the table, face up and smiling. I don't dicker. Now, here's where you stand. And I'll tell you, so you'll see you ain't got no call for haggling either. You've been hawking this boat around Long Island Sound for the past five weeks, and you ain't had one likely bona fide buyer yet, bar me. You gotta sell her, and I know it. Well, boys, I'll put you up a straight square deal. The blame race is only three weeks off, and there's nobody knows the boat like you two do. So I want you to help me get her ready and sail her down to Bermuda with me. If you agree to that, all you gotta do is show me the builder's receipt for what the boat cost you, and I'll give you a check right here and now for that precise sum plus 20% for a fair profit and for your services to be rendered. No dicker in mind, I won't dicker. So, speak up now, yes or no. George looked at me, and I looked at George, and Mr. Mullins, putting both feet on the table and nonchalantly wielding a toothpick, smiled upon us both. Well, that means you get the boat and us for just $7,800, said George. Why, you couldn't get another boat like this in the Sound today for $12,000, and you know it. Yes, said Mr. Mullins contentedly, and I'll tell you something else I know too. You've been all up and down trying to sell her. You ain't got nothing for her yet, much less $12,000. What's more, you won't, and you know it. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll spring another couple of hundred bucks and make it 8000 all told. Now, close on that quick or the deal's off. I won't dicker. George and I gazed at each other again for a long while, for now that it had actually come to the point, we had both felt exceedingly loath to part with our perfect ship. But when Mr. Mullins suddenly jumped to his feet, my nerves gave way, and she's yours, I cried, for 8000 at your terms, and God forgive me. At that, Mr. Mullins pulled out his checkbook, and twenty seconds later, the South Seaman belonged to George and me no longer. George and I sat with our feet on the rail of the Royal Bermuda Yacht Club's veranda. In front of us, the South Seaman floated above her anchor on the calm and opalescent waters of Hamilton Harbour. From behind us came the sound of Mr. Mullins drowning his sorrows at the bar. George and I and the South Seaman and Mr. Mullins had been doing these things for ten long, hot days, and George and I, at any rate, were getting tired of it. Presently entered Mr. Mullins, towing a large gentleman who looked like a pirate, but was in fact an opulent bootlegger. Mr. Mullins, pointing, Well, there she lies, mister. Yours for three thousand pounds, or fifteen thousand dollars in real money, if you like the sound of that better. I won't dicker. Is it a deal? No bluffing. I know as well as you do that you'll clean up a pile on her, with that British flag flying up aloft and four or five hundred cases of the real stuff stowed down below, observing us. Say, boys, I guess you've got to get back to God's own country in a steamer. The South Seaman ain't going. Not with passengers aboard anyways. She's got a freight. She ain't got no luck at racing, so she's going to business. She's sold. George, slowly. Yes, so I hear. For fifteen thousand dollars, Mullins, may God forgive you, for I never will. And all I could say for myself, from my soul, was amen to that. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. 
The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast and, of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.